Welcome to the To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so this was a fun week, I hope, for you. Uh, we got a couple chapters of Kings, of First Kings, but then we got into the wonderful world of uh, erotic, sexually charged poetry in the Old Testament and Song of Solomon, uh, and then some pretty... Um, uh, at times complex or um, nuanced arguments from Paul in the book of Galatians. And so uh, let's start with just a couple chapters of first Kings uh, where we start off with just really a roll call of Solomon's leaders. And so he's got his government officials and he's ready to go. Yeah. So the author here is just showing like, listen, Solomon's even wise in how he runs his administration. He's doing a good job so far. And so we hear about the kingdom, and mm-hmm. uh, in some ways, it sounds like everything's going well. Everybody's uh, it's, happy, it's hard. they're safe, yeah. no one's lacking, he writes a lot of music. Yeah, and, and there's even language around, um, uh, there's there's language that uh, I can't tell if it's totally hyperbolic. It says, like, he has a kingdom all the way east of the Euphrates. The Euphrates is pretty far away. I mean, this is, that's in the middle of Iraq. And so, um, yeah, how hyperbolic is that? I, I, I don't know, but... Um, the, the kingdom is going well. He's collected a lot of, uh, he's collecting, um, tributes from other nations. He's feeding his people. He's assembled a large army. So there's a little bit of like hint where I'm like, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I wonder uh, if this idea of the Euphrates, cause we have talked off the podcast about, um, a throwback to like creation and the fall. I wonder if it's right. kind of taking us back to Eden because that's around where the Garden of Eden was yeah. as well. So well, the yeah, author is making it's, a connection. It's, it's out in, on the edge of Babylon. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot of nuance. Yeah, maybe it's maybe this is a reset of creation, which some people do take uh, the Solomon story that way, where um, if Adam and Eve are supposed to rule with wisdom, we'll talk about this even in the intro of the Song of Solomon. If Adam and Eve are designed to rule over the world as kings and queens over the world, then they'd also have to rule with wisdom, understanding either the wisdom of God or their own sought wisdom, mm-hmm. the wisdom of man, the, 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 their own understanding of, of right and wrong, good and evil. Yeah. And so um, when Solomon ultimately says, yes, uh, God, what I want is your wisdom in order to rule, that maybe there's a, a an image that's supposed to be a reset of the garden and mm-hmm. people are eating under their own trees. There's peacefulness in Israel, um, all this kind of stuff. And ultimately we'll see kind of the play out in, in Solomon's life of going, okay, like, will he go after now that he's been granted this wisdom, will he go after and continue in the wisdom of God or will the, will the temptation that comes from the serpent? And I think through his wives and money and power and all that, will the temptation of the serpent ultimately lead um, to a breaking of this new creation in some way again, um, which really does lead to a very fractured nation yeah. coming out of Solomon. So yeah, there's some of that imagery that I think could be here. I think what we see here too with, with Solomon's wisdom gift and the benefits we see is that um, God, Solomon's gifts brought people to him and it brought peace. And so just step back for a second. None of us are kings. Um, We didn't necessarily have this like God moment where we asked him for wisdom and he gave it to us, but we do have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And so what gifts do you have that God can use to bring uh, beauty or change um, and and flourishing really to where you are. I mean, I think we all have these gifts that God has given us. And so let's use them for the benefit and the flourishing of our neighborhood, of our households, of our city, of our country. Yeah. And, and I do find it a little bit telling as, it, as Solomon's building this empire of Israel, there's, there's very little about 
Solomon seeking to make God's name great or um, some of that kind of stuff. He's building a large army, which um, is already something that Deuteronomy has kind of spoken a little bit about. And so there's, there's like, to me, kind of little cracks in the foundation that we're going to have to wait to see how they play out. And so let's move into the intro. Um, let's talk about the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, um, which uh, as uh, two married people that are unmarried to each other is always wonderful to talk about um, a book full of erotic poetry. Uh, but um, so yeah. there's go ahead. I, I really enjoyed studying this book, but um, I think the things we need to understand that are really important for this is the genre to understand that this is poetry. Okay. And so first of all, it's not necessarily linear. It's not necessarily chronological. And there is a lot of metaphor here. There's a lot of imagery that even echoes back to Genesis one and two. When you read about the garden, you read about sitting under fruit. And so we see this picture as we read it um, of, of possibly likely what this first marriage before the fall looked like, but we also can read it from the perspective of Christ and his church or God and Israel. And so um, one commentator talked about how we need to read this book with bifocals because you're reading it both, not exactly literally, but with an understanding of the romance found in marriage, but you're also reading it with an understanding of God and his love for church and people, or even this idea of wisdom that Chris will probably talk about. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely this, um, there's definitely different ways that um, people have metaphorically or allegorically understood this book. And some of it, yeah, is about God's desire for Israel or uh, in, embodied by Christ and his love for the church and even a reflections of Ephesians 5 and in that. Um, but there's also a way that... Um, and I think uh, I think Tim Mackey talks about it, and not the not the Bible project that overviews this book, but when he talks about wisdom literature of um, that uh, if the book of Proverbs, which is another book attributed to Solomon, um, is is treated as Solomon teaching his sons about kingship and as a king that you should go after wisdom and wisdom being this woman it's it's personified in a woman and if you have her then um the the language of proverbs 3 like she is like a tree uh the tree of life of who you lay hold of her and and it carries with it this sort of return to the garden ruling with wisdom uh, kind of picture but it's about the men going after wisdom and i think in proverbs it, it, i think are uh, out of this section uh, some take it that um the woman in this story is also sort of wisdom but from the other perspective from a wisdom's pursuit of the man as well um, and the struggle between God and humanity to ever really truly reunite uh, to rule and to reign and, and to but but that that desire that that drive to, to 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 be intimate together and to showcase that through the picture of a man and a woman and mm-hmm. so um, yeah it's interesting there's interesting just, ways to take it yeah there's a lot there's a lot to mine from this from this poetry if you really slow down Yep. I'm taking it. And so let's begin in the opening line itself, kind of let you know what this book's really about. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And so uh, there's no vagueness of literature uh, right from the get-go and the poetic nature of it, the the more sexualized nature of it. Um, it's just there. And this woman's intoxicated and this, this man's better than wine uh, for her and or for him. And she's like, he's like perfume. Our love's like perfume. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of imagery right from the get-go. Yeah. So we see initially the woman 
kind of being the initiator, uh, which is an interesting perspective. And we just see them celebrating this idea of love and the physical passion that is goes along with that within the marriage or betrothed context. Something I do really want to note is that it says at the beginning, the Song of Songs, which is basically speaking in like, this is the greatest of all songs. And it says of Solomon, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Solomon is the author. Uh, it could just be written in the in the style that Solomon did or at the time of Solomon, which I think both Chris and I would lean towards believing that this was not Solomon's personal testimony. Yeah, and, and I don't think ultimately the whole section is, is ultimately about Solomon himself. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that as we go. Um, the Bible project covers that whole Solomon thing pretty well of going, here's why like people have different interpretations of that. So, uh, that might be helpful to watch. Um, and, and there's one thing we're introduced here that I think does become a little bit of attention, at least how, how I've read it of, we find out that her brothers are angry or not happy about whatever this desire, this love, this, this, whatever she might be going after, uh, there seems to be some form of family or those around her who um, want to work against maybe them them getting together or feel like maybe it's too soon. And we'll see that as we go. Yeah. Uh, so Solomon, um, or once again, this, this is where headers, uh, when you're reading the ESV, uh, uh, which is what we usually read out of, uh, you might get headers that say names and, and stuff like that. Just know the headers are not in the original text. So when it says Solomon and his bride delight in each other, it might be Solomon. He's, he's kind of unnamed, at least in this section. So, uh, be, be careful not to necessarily jump in. That's a, that's mm-hmm. a theological interpretation by the, by the editors there uh, to put that there. Yeah. So we see them really, really desiring to be together and yet resolving to kind of wait until marriage to consummate this. And I think for us, there's, we, I just think we can get a picture here of the difference between lust and a passionate love for someone. And it really has to do with the behavior and the acting. And so this picture of passionate and deep love is expressed through celebrating the other person and desiring them, but not acting on that desire until the time is right. And I think when it turns into lust, when you are so, is when you personally are so consumed with passion that you prematurely act physically on the love and desire and suddenly it becomes about you and satisfying your own craving instead of honoring the person you love and you are waiting for. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so we get all sorts of language around, um, nature, uh, animals, plants, fruit, all that, uh, as we go and, and just know, I mean, the, the metaphors themselves are not as image oriented as they are, um, probably metaphorically oriented. So like, concept. Your eyes, yeah, the concept. Your your eyes like doves. It's like, well, our eyes don't literally look like doves, but they they might have a divine presence in them, which would have been an understanding of doves and around their time or something along those lines. Or maybe there's something peaceful, though. The idea of doves and peace is a little bit after this time, but still, that sort of idea um, mm-hmm. of 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 concept and not literal representation visually. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, the bride uh, adores her beloved, uh, and, and the beloved shows up to, to speak. Uh, and so, um, and, and if verse seven, uh, was, Hey ladies, wait, wait until love, let wait until you're truly ready, uh, for this. Uh, then this, that following section is, well, the time is right. <laughs> it's like the guy shows up. It's like, this is springtime. Everything's in bloom. Uh, and, and maybe that's metaphorical to say like, look, your body's ready. You are old enough for this. We, we are ready. It is time uh, to make this happen. 
Yeah, I really like the verse about catching the foxes in the vineyard uh, because I, I think it's a metaphor of risks that can come into, if you are marriage, um, the difficulties or the risks that can come in and threaten the relationship. And so marriage is something to be fought for and protected. It's not going to just naturally be protected. You have to work for it. And there are things that can sneak in like little foxes. I know that sounds kind of cheesy and threaten your marriage. And it could be something really clear like pornography addiction or a lack of sexual intimacy, but it could also be really small little things like lack of time together or lack of trust for one another or lack of vulnerability. So stop for, for a moment and pray. Like, are there, are there foxes? Are there threats to your marriage right now that you can work to get rid of so you can fight for and protect your marriage and that it can be this beautiful picture of what marriage is supposed to be as it reflects Christ in the church. Well, yeah, and I'll throw I'll throw one more uh, suggestion out there just because of the context maybe of the, of the whole thing. Like some of those foxes might even be in family and, and, hmm. and relatives and parents that you go to whenever you have a problem with your spouse and they share and you're like, Oh, you, you deserve better or something like that. It's like, no, that may be a Fox too. That is also bringing That's good. problems to your relationship. But anyways, um, and so, uh, but then we get these dream sequences and we get a couple of them, uh, throughout, uh, the poetry and this woman has a dream and her lover's missing and she goes out to look for him, but she finds the watchman, but eventually she finds him and then she wants to bring him back to her house. She, she is young. Um, so that, that would make sense that he would, she would bring him back to his, her mom's house. But this is a dream. This is, um, yeah. a, a dream sequence and we're going to get. Uh, a similar one later on as we go yeah. a real um, desperate longing and, and waiting to be with him yeah so there's there's this constant theme of disconnect as the book went where um yeah it was sort of like she doesn't seem to be with him but then they seem to be together but then there seemed to be some distance but then they seem to be together um so as i said and, and what we said at the beginning this is not the perfect most perfectly linear story and i don't think it was ever meant to be mm-hmm. But here we do see Solomon arrive uh, on the scene. It's the, the most literal uh, picture of Solomon in the story. That um, and there's three ways that people view this. One is um, the groom in the whole Song of Songs really is Solomon. Um, that that he is the man in the story. Um, th- this seems unlikely because of stuff we'll see as we go on, or just the the solo focus of Solomon's vision. If this is him in the story, just doesn't match what else we know about Solomon. Um, and, and so yeah there's a struggle there uh, that or the king was invited to the wedding celebration. So Solomon is arriving as part of the wedding celebration between these lovers or um, she's, she's dreaming, which I think this is still the dream state. And, and as she's thinking about her wedding, this, this man that she's in love with has a, a representation that's like, he's like a king. He's like a king to me or whatever it may be. Um, there's a kingly representation of him that she um, dreams out as Solomon instead. Mm. So, yeah, I think those are your options if you want to uh, think through what what does that mean then to interpret. But, yeah. So then we move into this really descriptive celebration of the woman's body. It's vulnerable. It's passionate. Uh, this may still be a dream that we're having um, or that she's having, but uh, we see a total devotion. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a full on vulnerable appreciation of her, um, of him being like, this is what I love about you. This is uh, what, what um, I'm drawn to. I want to, I want to highlight, I want to compliment you um, all of it. Uh, and, um, 
and then he pleads with her. He's like, "Leave, let's let's get away from Lebanon. Let's 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 leave this place so I can go enjoy your garden." And so, I think that's really the invitation of let's let's go make this happen. Right. And so, in Near Eastern culture, a garden typically represented a woman's sexuality. Mm-hmm. So, when we read that, we can understand what that metaphor means. Yep. And her response to wanting him wanting to enjoy her garden is, "Let my beloved come to his garden and eat his choicest fruit." And so, yeah, that's it's it's the agreement. Yeah, so let's make this happen. And he does. Um, and as a common cultural norm, we also get the crowd right after that going, "Yeah, that let's celebrate that this happened. Let's celebrate this union, uh, which would have happened actually usually in a wedding if if this is even a wedding ceremony, which is also a way people interpret it." Um, that uh, they have now consummated in some way. It's a, they are enjoying the garden and um, and the crowd would celebrate that consummation in traditional Middle Eastern wedding ceremonies. Yeah, I, I love the picture of abandon we see here. I don't, the woman does not hide her body or her emotion or her passion for the man. Um, and, and at the risk of maybe over-spiritualizing this, we really do see this as a parallel to Christ and the church. Sex is a representation of the promised land in scripture where the presence of God dwells. And so it's the full union of God with his people and the complete sharing of intimacy and celebration and really fidelity. And so I think, uh, again, read this with both lenses, but but when we see the vulnerability and the passion and desire and abandon to one another, we can think of Christ and the church and we can think of how we live even as people before God. Yeah. And, and to piggyback off that, like the, the, the garden itself, which I think there's a lot of overtones of the garden here, is where Adam From, and Eve are naked yeah. and unashamed. And um, there's, there's true vulnerability. There's no breaking of their intimacy yet because of sin. And what I think Song of Solomon is representing, what I think marriage itself ultimately tries to, to draw out of us is is that taste of what is it really like um, to be naked and unashamed again and even more so spiritually naked and unashamed again and and um, painting that picture not only in in the setting of this man and this woman but um, pointing towards all of our marriages and saying yeah. like look there's there's a moment to recapture what we had in the garden in your marriage and 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 seek after that long after that long after that in each other. Yeah. So then we kind of change scenes again. We hit another dream sequence and um, she longs to be with him, but she opens the door and he's gone. Yeah. And then she wants him even more. Yeah. There's like this anticipation of like, he's knocking, he's knocking, it's building, it's building. And she opens it and he's gone. And then she goes outside and is beaten by the watchman, which gosh, I think there's multiple ways that we could take that. But remember, this is dream sequence. She wasn't literally beaten by Watchmen in some sort of literal storytelling at this moment, and so, um, but she's still longing, even in her even in her trauma of this moment. She's like, I still want him, um, and so yeah, so uh, she comes along, and and where he spent a while talking about how attractive she was, he, she's going to turn the tables here uh, in chapter five into six, um, and talk about how how hot this guy is. Yeah. So figurative language all over the place. He has lips like lilies and arms of rounded gold. Um, and, and I love that she even calls him a friend. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think that's a picture of intimacy too, that your lover is also your friend. That 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 um, I always joke with my wife when, when we say like her old password or something on something would be like, is your best friend? And I'm like, 
me? Like, does the password Chris or is it her best friend from childhood? And I'm like, because as her husband, I want to be her best friend. And, and I want that sort of intimacy. And I think that's what also is after here that even more in a weird context of, of first century or ancient relationships, the thought that your wife or your husband would be a friend is, is probably pretty foreign. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, this is an idealized picture here. And so probably if you're married, you're listening to this and thinking, well, like that's not impossible or I don't know how to get there. Uh, but there is something to be said about spending time. If you are married dwelling on what you find attractive about your spouse, and that can be physical or it can be, um, on top of physical, it can also be uh, personality or gifts or things like that. But the more we choose to consider and dwell on what is lovable um, or honorable about our spouse, the more our love for them will grow as well. Yeah. I mean, even piggybacking off of First Corinthians 7, when we did that a couple of weeks ago, like when Paul starts talking about marriage, at least in that section and, and relationships, like it's always about the other. And um, your, your, your body is your spouse and your spouse's body is yours in this sort of intimate way that um, we also think about how, when it comes to sexuality, it's not what do I get, but how do I, how do I serve and, and enjoy and bring joy to the other? Yeah. So then we move back to this idea of her lover in the garden. Yep. So everybody's asking her, where's her lover? And she says, he's, he's in the garden. He's, uh, enjoying it. And, and he says his garden, which I think at this point in, in the narrative, it's also her garden, like, because what is his is hers and hers is his now. And so, um, he's, he's enjoying the garden. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's something very countercultural about how we can approach this as followers of Christ and that, um, even sex within a marriage can be a form of sacrifice, uh, focusing on the pleasure of your spouse and not yourself during sex. And that is a form of worship to God. And I know we oftentimes try to separate this idea of sex from worship, which is kind of interesting to me because God created it and it's God is glorified when it is done, uh, within the confines of marriage and to serve one another. But it was, I mean, sex is such a common part of different pagan rituals and religions that it should be a component of what of what we as christians a form of worship for us i guess is what i'm saying but it's sacrificial yeah absolutely um and so we get uh what's titled as solomon and his bride delight in each other but um the the man and and the woman delight in each other uh and we get some uh, repeat of imagery uh verses four through seven are almost straight repeats from earlier um we get her checking again that the timing is ready Uh, so like i said this isn't linear so there's some jumping around in time uh, but there's a feeling that love's ready to culminate there's sort of a wedding uh kind of moment there's even this talk of her her dancing i think the return 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 that language is also like turning and spinning and so i think there's a bridal dance going on in that in that text um and and we're continuing with those deep metaphors um that are uh uncomfortable a little bit as you read them it's like your 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 breasts are like basically the 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 parts of the palm tree the the, like coconuts in some ways and and he's like i want to climb the palm tree and lay hold of its branches and so there's a little bit of going okay like that's not hard to think about like uh, that, that idea. And so, um, it is pretty sexually charged throughout this whole, whole book. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah. then she, he says that to her and then she invites him to come yeah, and desire her and she offers herself to him. Let's do, do this. And, and even the, the Hebrew word really is the word that is also used for sex in that section of in verse 12. And then uh, she starts talking about even the intimacy of it all. And, and, and this idea of even, 
him being a part of the family, um, as if like, I, w- I wish I would have known you ever since I was born. Um, and, and I'm inviting you into my household, into my family. Um, and this. wishing, she, yeah, she didn't have a day or a moment without him. Yeah. Um, and we get imagery of them being under the fruit tree of like leaving the wilderness and coming to, to sit or enjoy under a fruit tree, which should have calls back once again to, to Eden as well. Yeah. But then there's some leftovers, uh, not leftover, uh, a final statement around sort of love, uh, this, this kind of short, but really dense statement about what love is. And, um, in some ways I think that the presentation is that love is like a fire and, 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 and it's amazingly, it's a, it's a good thing that has warmth and benefit and light and all that. But, can also be dangerous, particularly because of the vulnerability required in love, um, that, um, you have to open yourself up in love and, and it can be an amazing thing and a joyful thing. But if misused, if misused in, in moving towards lust instead of love, or if misused by the other person, it can be dangerous as well. Yeah. So I, it's, again, it's really beautiful and powerful imagery that I think also can be messianic. I mean, when we read, set me as a seal upon your heart or love as strong as death and jealousy as fierce as the grave. The picture we have of that is Christ and how, um, or this verse, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. You know who left heaven to come down to earth? And he did that for the sake of love and because he loved us. And so we have this perfect messianic picture of the embodiment of love through Christ, um, who is now the bridegroom and we are his bride. And so we get to sit under that sacrificial incredibly powerful love of our savior. Yeah. It's so great coming off of first Corinthians uh, 13 and, and then reading this too of like Jesus being this, this picture of love, love personified in in first Corinthians 13 love as desire and attraction and sacrifice uh, in in those verses. And so, um, yeah, it's such a beautiful picture. And then we're kind of left with this final advice and um, it's a little bit tougher to to interpret the section. It does feel like at least how I would read it as uh, that those, those brothers, that family that seemed to disapprove at the beginning of the book are kind of back saying, look, she, she wasn't ready yet. And she was like a wall or a fence and we, we did have to hold her up. But, and she basically saying, I am that wall, but my lover's coming. Uh, He saw me and he's going to break down that wall. And she wants him to make haste to, to come quickly. Yeah. So again, uh, it just makes me think of the desiring Christ, desiring to see him face to face. Like we read about in first Corinthians 13 or this idea in Isaiah 25 about this wedding feast. And we will say, surely this is the one we have waited for. And that's what we anticipate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this, this book does flow into Isaiah and we get vineyards in Isaiah all over the place. We get uh, other ideas. It's not as um, sexual when it returns to vineyard and it jumps to, to Israel being in the vineyard, but still, um, this sort of pictures that are carried over into that book. Yeah. And, um, yeah. What a, what a, what a fun ride. Hopefully you guys had this week, uh, and confusing. And it's like, where are we? Who's talking? What, what timeline? Are we what sure has happened yet? The are they married yet? Where, where does this fit in? And so, yeah. Um, and, and yes, I mean, American poetry is already hard to read. And if you did lit classes in school, European or foreign or poetry, that's that much harder, but let's add 2,500 years and a whole different culture to it. Um, it's just hard. It's hard sometimes for us to totally grasp all that's going on, all how they would have read it, all that kind of stuff. And, and the allegory, the, the metaphors, all of it just become hard. And, 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 um, and, and here's what I would say we do know. One, this book certainly celebrates sexual desire between a man and a woman, um, uh, that, um, 
that that's a good thing. Yes, there's other ways to think about love as, as steadfastness and other things. But one of the ways to think about love is, is tied into desire and attraction. And that's a good thing. It's not held up as a, as a bad thing. Um, and then historically, no matter which group you've been a part of, there's been allegorical metaphoric interpretations of this book mm-hmm. between God and his people. And so um, I think it's always important to understand that as you read it. Yeah. And I think, you know, the thing that stood out to me the most was this idea of the vulnerability in loving someone fully with abandon and how we see Christ doing that for us, but we also can do that when the time is right within marriage. And if you were married, fight for your marriage. Um, it may be weird, but entertain these thoughts of erotic passion for your spouse. Uh, it's how God designed it. And so work work to achieve that. And I know that there are so many qualifiers. And so I don't want to minimize different struggles or authoritative or any of that within a marriage, but uh, this is God's design for marriage. And if you are dating or you are engaged, wait for sex. This book would not exist if they had had sex when they first desired one another, the anticipation and desire to be unified in itself is a gift from God. So um, be uncomfortable in your desire, but thank God for that season as well. Yeah. I mean, you're telling, you're telling the story of even a God who came to this earth to basically become betrothed to his bride. And then one day is coming back to, to culminate that uh, the bride and the, and the groom will be fully merged together. And so um, even in the waiting, we, we tell the story of who Jesus is and what God has done. And so yes. um, you don't just wait because sex is dirty and wrong and it's only enjoyable if you get married. No, I mean, no, that that's a bad teaching that the church has been a part of. We tell the greater story with our sexuality. Yeah. So let's jump to New Testament and Galatians. We'll see how quickly we can get through this, given our time frame right now. Um, but uh, we get Paul sort of defend who he is here. And it's interesting because he would have had basically the Ivy League education of his time uh, under Gamaliel. Um, it would have given Paul authority at just about any synagogue he walks into. But he's like, hey, um, yeah, I left that authority and I went to go um, study under somebody new. And he speaks about that. He's like, after I met Jesus in Damascus, I headed to Arabia. I got I got out and I didn't talk to any other the other disciples. I learned basically straight from Jesus himself because Paul's an apostle. He's been commissioned specifically from Jesus. And after those three years, he goes and meets up with uh, Peter and James. And, and it sounds like he um, told told those two everything that he learned about what the gospel is, what is true, what Jesus was really about. And they get, yeah, you're right, Paul. Praise God that that's happened to you um, and, and give him the rubber stamp. It's kind of interesting. Paul, Paul definitely um, seems to understand um, or at least tip his hat to or honor um, some authority of the early church, particularly around James and Peter. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Uh, but we're going to see also that they're not put on pedestals, by the way. Paul also deals with Peter. And so uh, Paul has also been traveling around. So after that moment, he travels around with Barnabas. He has his missionary, early missionary journeys. Um, and 14 years go by. Uh, this, this is a long period of time. Um, and there's still a struggle with um, who, who is in and who is out. Um, and Paul doesn't seem to be swayed in his preaching. And he shows up to, to the church with um, a Cretan of all people. And this, and this is Titus. Uh, Titus is Greek. Cretans were certainly not thought of as, I mean, they were thought of as some of the, the, the Gentiles of the Gentiles. Um, but he's a commissioned elder in the church, uh, or at least will become an elder and, um, is uncircumcised and, and sort of brings him up going, okay, like is what I'm preaching, is this still true? Is this still right? Is, 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 
is the involvement of the Gentiles and the not requirement for them to follow the law. Is this still true? And uh, the early church of Peter, James, and John say, yes, we are, we up your support. We're here with you. So there's an endorsement of him here, which is great. Yeah, I think uh, what kind of stood out to me in reading this is just seeing how Faith or Paul didn't immediately convert and then become this itinerant preacher, but he spent time learning, learning on his own and growing in his own relationship with God as Savior um, and in humility in that. And then he spent time learning and coming under the authority of other leadership. And so he had this individual spiritual growth and then the authority and the blessing of of other church leadership before he went out into his preaching and teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but then we run into the fact that, um, these men come from James. And so it's important to remember, um, James is over the church in Jerusalem. And, uh, if we go back to the council in acts, uh, James is the person that, uh, after they sort of go, okay, like the Gentiles don't have to be Jewish. And James is like, yeah, but we still need him to follow a few rules and comes up with a few rules. And then if we read James, the, this same James as the James from, uh, his own letter later, uh, in, in the new Testament, he's also the one that struggles with, okay, like what is faith? How does works work in? And like, we can't just have a, a faith that doesn't have works. And so, um, yeah, so I think the same James is in Jerusalem and some of the folks at his church who are probably struggling with where does works fall in come up uh, to Antioch and, and cause problems for Peter. It's easy to imagine the situation. Let's pretend like you're 50 or 60 years ago in like a really Southern Baptist version of the South where dancing and any form of drinking and all these rules existed that were in some ways extra biblical. There's freedom that that exists outside of those rules. And then you were to move over to the West Coast. You start going to a church out there. There's parties and dancing and, and people drink in moderation and stuff like that. And then a bunch of your friends visit from the Old South and they show up to town and, and suddenly you're like, hey, um... I need you guys to not be like this. And, 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 um, you tell your Gentile or your uh, friends in, in the West coast being like, Hey, let's that party we had canceled we, or party we had, can we cancel that and not do that this week? And can you not dance? Can you stop drinking around my friends, please? And, and I think Paul's really on Peter here around that, um, that Peter has not only given into this crowd that's come from, from Jerusalem, but has actually required the Gentiles to follow the same rules. And Paul wants nothing about it. And, and it's important to remember, Sarah and I talked about this whole section for a while in, in this region of Galatia, um, you had a more conservative branch of Judaism that, when it came to the Gentiles, took a pretty hard line to say that um, they can be God-fears, they can believe in Yahweh, but they're never really a part of us. They're, they're not part of being Jewish in any way, shape, or form. They're just simply God-fears. Um, and there were debates amongst early Jews around that of who, what what role did the Gentiles play, but they were always treated as outsiders, particularly in this group. And, and so um, the only way they can be insiders is in some ways, um, they're never fully insiders, is to go through circumcision, um, to uh, start following Torah, kosher diets, and everything else. Um, and, and they would have to go through all that. And not only that, if they were treated as outsiders, if they didn't do that, then Rome would give them problems too, because they would still re- be required to have an allegiance to, to emperor. And so there was a lot of push and a lot of drive for the Gentiles in this region to convert basically to Judaism uh, in order to um, be protected. And there was pressure from the Jewish people uh, to do that because they, they were never really considered Jewish unless they went through all these things. And so um, it, it became 
quite a struggle. And Paul shows up going, hold on, like you need to understand justification, which is really where he starts unpacking this whole thing. And, and it's important to note justification, salvation at this time, it's, it's hard to know how connected they work. We just don't historically up to that point have a lot of talk on justification. So um, at least in the new Testament. And so um, this is the question of like, okay, justification, this word, and it's important for us to, to, to define it, that um, it, it's, it's one that would be kind of declared righteous. And what I mean by that is like, you are, as you should be, you are acceptable. You are how you ought to be that you are um, in, in some ways made right. And, um, and so who, who, cause, cause there, there's an understanding that God does that. God takes something that was wrong and he declares it as right. And, and so they justifies it. And so, um, there was a question of like, okay, who, who is justified? Who gets to experience justification? What does that mean? Um, who, where do they fall under, um, and, and the question of how does the law fit into all of that? And, and so you had Gentiles who, um, we're always treated on, on some level on the outside of, of, of the promises and, and in both kind of major camps of Judaism would say like, yeah, the Gentiles are like never really heirs of the promise. They're, they're always on the outside and they can enjoy the blessing and, 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 and some of those things, but, but they're never really heirs to the promise. It's only us as Jews. And this is where Paul sort of just flips everything on its head when he starts talking about Abraham because he's brilliant. He jumps back to Abraham and, and goes, okay, who, who are we as a people? Because if Abraham's really our father and he's really kind of the father of the faith, faith and the promise, the, the blessings and the promise were initially made to Abraham, then he's justified by faith before he's ever circumcised, before the law ever comes around 400 years later, before all this other stuff that they, the Jewish people are identifying with and going, look, the blessing, the blessed to be a blessing, God's work of redeeming this world and working through this people that he's going to bless in order to bless the world started with this guy who was simply justified by faith. And that's it. So if these Greeks have faith in, in, in God and faith in Christ, then that's all they need to be justified, to be right, to be made um, whole. And, and, and in so doing, they are actually a part of our family because they are part of the lineage of Abraham. And, and for these Greeks, like, and not only that, but, but these Jews that were arguing, like, that was the revolutionary turn for these people mm-hmm. that had often functioned out of, here are the insiders and here are the outsiders. Here's the exclusivity of things. And Paul comes along going, hold on, like, you're, you are wrecking the gospel if, if you don't understand the inclusivity of what God is doing, that God's work on blessing the world is happening through the Jews and through the Gentiles now because of Christ. And, and you need to understand what justification is really all about. And, and, and it's by faith and faith alone, not by following the Torah, not by doing those things. If anything, we were, we were in bondage because of those things. Like it, 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 it came with it with its own blessings and curses and all this kind of stuff. We have a we have a, a different promise that doesn't come that way. It's just a promise, and and it was fulfilled in the seed of Jesus, and it becomes that much greater and that much grander. And so, in a lot of ways, yeah, we don't function in a time period where um, we're dealing with Judaizers and, and this kind of thing. But I, I think one of the essential pieces I think Paul drives at, and the thing that just makes him so angry in this letter, um, is 
is how inclusive should the gospel be? And I think Paul's fighting for them to understand just the beauty and the inclusivity of the gospel. And if the first thing you think about when you think about the gospel of Jesus is exclusivity, I think you're missing the point a little bit. And I'm not fighting for universalism. I don't think I'm, I don't think I, I, or, that's 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 not what I'm arguing for here. But at the same time, I think there's a beauty of the invitation of the good news of Jesus that these people are struggling with. And Paul's like, no, 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 you need to understand all Jews and Greeks and women and men and slaves and free people. And by Colossians, he includes barbarians, Scythians are all heirs to the promise that was given to Abraham. And that, that is a radical shift in history. So yeah, so step back for a second and remember everything we read in the Torah. Remember all the rules and the laws and everything like that that these Jews followed. And then they meet Jesus and they realize he perfectly fulfilled the law for them so that they can be saved. Um, and that these people, the Gentiles who always were out, are now invited in. And I know we're you know, like 2,000 years after the fact of this. And so it may not hit us in the same way as completely scandalous and shocking as it may hit others um, or it may have hit the original audience. Um, but this is just such a powerful truth that really should give you goosebumps when you think of what it means to be justified by Christ. And we have to be careful because I think sometimes when people have been a Christian for a while, whether you grew up Christian or you've just been a Christian for a while, that we can lean a little bit towards legalism and starting to discern someone's salvation based on their actions or be behaviors, especially around behaviors that aren't even really clearly defined as sin or not a sin. But when Paul says the gospel is is for all and we all have equal access to salvation in Christ is incredible. And, um, you know, he seems to get even more upset about this issue in Galatians than he got about the issues of behavior in Corinth. And I think it's because, uh, these, these, I don't know, Messianic Jews are adding to the gospel and they saying, and they're saying for you to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus and get circumcised. And so, um, Paul is so passionate about the purity and the truth of the gospel because it is such amazing news that, that he kind of like flies off the handle here, which is awesome. But step back and, and think, can you really state the gospel as well um, as well as it's kind of stated in here or as thoroughly? And then are you passionate about the gospel and gospel alone that you are horrified if someone adds to it or takes from it because you want the purity and inclusivity of the gospel to be for all people? Yeah. Yeah, if the the conservative Jews would have said that um, that unless they went through circumcision, that they couldn't be, and they would call them actually brothers in Abraham, but they would never be true heirs like um, of 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 the land and all the promises. And even the more liberal crowd still didn't allow that. And so Paul is taking even the two positions from liberal to conservative in in this time and going, I am what Jesus has done has pushed us even further. To, to this including of everyone, whatever status, whatever position, all have access, all are on equal playing ground and access to, to, to the Lord, which was unheard of at the time. And in some ways it's still unheard of in a lot of the systems and structures of that we build today. And so, um, yeah. And, and so the, the big question comes up, which it should, if it's like, well, if it was always justification by faith and we got that before the law, why do we have the law then? What was the point? And, and I think Paul's like, well, if point A was the promise and point B was fulfilled in Jesus, the, the seed of Abraham, the fulfilling of that promise, we needed something in between. And um, the law itself, it could never do what the promise could. Um, the law doesn't produce faith. The promise does, but the law does provide um, what, what ultimately is like a guardian 
um, or um, a, a custodian of an account. Um, the, the language there is is like one who, um, if 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 a family died while their kids were still really young, uh, they would get the inheritance. But if the kids like eight years old. What are they going to do with the inheritance? And so, uh, most of the time, wills would appoint a, a custodian or a guardian to help uh, until those kids are old enough and ready and mature enough for this um, for their inheritance to be claimed. And, and so I think Paul takes that um, picture and, and presents it of going, that's what the law was for. It, it was uh, for the for the fullness of time, for um, ultimately the maturity and, and the timing of humanity, for, for God to um, give a, a custodian and an overwatcher of the inheritance. Um, and then um, now that the seed has been revealed and now that, now that the time, now that they're old enough, the promise has been released. The, the promise of blessing to the nations is happening. The inheritance has been claimed. And so um, that was the purpose of the law. It was um, um, until the time was right for the people. And in between those two points, we needed some guardian overseer during that time. Cool. Yeah. So Chris, do you feel like you might be a little bit passionate about the book of Galatians? Yeah, it's a good one. It's a really good one. Um, I mean, and, and, and there's a little bit of me that's going like, even thinking historically and linearly, like they, even, even though these disciples and even though um, Paul has spent time with Jesus, we also get the impression that like, they're still figuring things out as they go. And and they're still teaching people new concepts that they're struggling with. They're, they're like, yeah, but we still need them to do things and it just doesn't feel right. And we still have some of those. It's like, what is allowable? What is not? Like we'd be uncomfortable in certain situations probably too. And if we were in their time frame, we would probably sit there going like, yeah, like this doesn't feel right. This feels so, ch- this is such a huge change. I just don't feel comfortable with. And, and Paul and, and these disciples are coming along going, no, that like we have to get our minds around the beauty of what Jesus has done, what he's doing, what the church is going to look like, all that kind of stuff. It's just so, um, you feel it unpacking as Paul's writing his letters, um, for these people, for him, for the early church. And so I think it's, I think there's some beauty in it all. Yeah. So next week, Old Testament, New Testament. All right. So Old Testament, we're going to start reading about the temple, Solomon's temple. So just compare and contrast what we read about the temple with what we read about the tabernacle in Exodus. I think that'll be really interesting to do. Mm -hmm. And then in the New Testament, we are going to finish up on Galatians. And so, um, when you're done reading, step back for a moment and and summarize, like write it down, the main point of the letter. Or what key verse would you use to argue this and to pull in all together the whole big picture of what the book of Galatians is about? Yeah, it's so good. Um, yeah, uh, for me in the Old Testament, uh, uh, look for some subtle references to who ends up helping to build this temple. And does it seem like everybody's working as volunteers? Who is Solomon using to, to, to build the temple? Mm. Um, I, I think you'll notice a, a few things there. Uh, and then the New Testament, um, one of the ways I think helps us, because covenants are such huge ideas, is to also think in like a flow chart and who falls under what. Like under the Noe covenant, which what population falls under that? And under the Abraham, who falls under that? Like, <clears throat> is Ishmael under that? Is is he under the Abrahamic covenant or not? And then when you get to the to to 
Jacob and his kids and the Noah or the Mosaic covenant, just dealing with who, who is under what and what Paul might be doing in some of the storytelling when he starts telling the story of Hagar and Ishmael and all these kind of things. Um, think about what the arguments Paul's making in light of sort of those pictures, if you can flow chart it in your brain. So I think that'll be helpful. So that's it. Cool. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Y'all.